At Eastern Bank, we believe that growing business should also grow the community. That's why we work to give all business owners what they need to take their dreams to the next level. Our dedication to small businesses and communities has inspired us to create the Equity Alliance for Business program and become the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running. We're proud to be here for all businesses, big and small. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. In late 2007, the remains of a young woman from the Casca Nation were discovered in the Yukon woods. I always think about, I want to know what really happened. So I travel north to try to understand what happened and who was involved. It's a pretty big risk to come forward with the information that I have. I'm David Ridgen, and this is Someone Knows Something, Season 8, The Angel Carlet Case. Available now. Welcome to Say More from Boston Globe Opinion. Filling in for Shirley Leung this week, I'm Brian Bergstein, editor of the Globe's Ideas section. I come on this podcast from time to time to ask big questions about artificial intelligence. I'm hoping to separate hype from reality and understand both the promise and the risk of AI. Today we're going to talk about the tech companies that stand to profit massively from AI and what responsibility the government has to regulate the industry to protect us from AI technology getting out of control while not stifling things too early either. The Biden administration has made some moves. One thing is clear. To realize the promise of AI and avoid the risk, we need to govern this technology. There's no other way around it, in my view. It must be governed. We've had giant corporations before, but AI may be creating a special case. Do we really want only a small number of companies deciding how an incredibly powerful technology develops and how it is used? My guest today says no, but he says there are solutions. Tim Wu is one of the most thoughtful tech critics around, someone who's concerned with many aspects of what tech companies get away with doing. He's a professor of law at Columbia University. He has dabbled in politics, including two years as a special assistant to President Biden for technology and competition policy. He is the author of several books, including The Curse of Bigness, Antitrust in the New Gilded Age. Tim Wu, thank you for joining me on Say More. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Tim, I want to talk about two related but distinct ideas. One is whether it's possible to regulate AI itself, and the other is how to deal with the enormous market powers of the companies that own it. So let's start with the first half of that. President Biden recently issued an executive order on AI. And among other things, it says AI developers have to test their systems for reliability, stop algorithmic discrimination, protect consumer privacy. So you wrote in the New York Times that this order may be doing too much and too little at the same time. What did you mean by that? I should clarify that I I broadly support what they're doing, but I think the conversation around AI regulation uh, has a little bit of too much and too little at the same time. I think we have been entirely too focused on the sort of existential science fiction style of risks. We, we're all, everyone knows Skynet and Terminator, uh, HAL 9000 and, and 2001, obviously are things nobody wants to have happen, like intelligent robots uh, taking over the Earth. And 
entirely too unfocused on the actual harms that the early versions of AI are already uh, starting to inflict. So how would we fix that? In terms of what we could do uh, more, I think, and I've been pushing a long time, that we need to take action on human impersonation. Um, I just don't think anything comes uh, that is positive about robots imitating humans. When you think about so many of the problems in, for example, the spreading of false news or fake news, when you think about uh, identity theft, when you think even about people snapping up uh, tickets to Taylor Swift concerts, a lot of it has to do with robots that are uh, pretending to be human. And that's something I think we should act on aggressively. But for some reason, Congress seems more interested in, in the HAL Skynet type of risk right now. So there's a school of thought that all the HAL Skynet type of risk is a clever distraction, either intentionally or not, that it's a form of hype, it kind of, you know, trumpets the potential power of this technology, and that it's actually getting in the way of us handling the problems that we're dealing with right now. I mean, do you think that's true? I think it's true. I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. In other words, I don't think the scientists who are concerned about these problems uh, are acting in bad faith or are themselves controlled by some evil robot or something. Uh, but I, I do think that the discussion is entirely too uh, focused on that. And I, I do think it, there is no excuse for not acting on some of the more obvious and visceral harms uh, that we're seeing. So uh, the government has been criticized before for failing to fully understand emerging technologies, let alone to properly regulate them. Uh, social media is a, a prime example. I mean, do you think that's playing out here to some extent? Uh, not, not really. I, I think that critique, which is, you know, popular among engineers uh, and scientists, uh, I don't think is um, accurate in this case. You know, I've sometimes said a Congress doesn't need to understand rocket science to, to fund a mission to the moon. And, you know, you don't need Congress to be full of uh, computer scientists to understand the risks and the, the harms or non-harms being caused by, uh, by AI. So, you know, I take a slightly different view on that. And, I, you know, if I work with those people at the White House, the, the people working on this are knowledgeable. Social media was a different case. Um, and again, I don't know if it was lack of technical expertise. I think it was a problem of perspective or paradigm. You know, when Facebook and Google were little scrappy companies, uh, you know, cute little Silicon Valley startups, they were kind of like uh, the Ewoks in the early version of that movie or Furbies or something um, that just seemed like harmless creatures. And, you know, social media, what could be bad about that? It's just friends sharing photos of their vacations and, you know, having good times. You know, today we're looking at teenage mental health crisis and terrible research on the effect of, of social media on children. And, um, you know, it kind of it kind of crept up on us. And I don't really think that's a problem of not understanding. I think as a society wide, we just thought it was uh, a harmless bit of fun. And that hasn't turned out that way. So even if policymakers understand AI, it does seem that one challenge could be that AI is actually hard to define. And I wonder if that could make it hard to write clear rules for this. You know, I, I'm not against regulating technology, but, you know, it's quite the contrary. But I do think you can do a better and worse job. Um, I'm very interested in sort of legal engineering and, you know, in other words, trying to do a good job with laws. And, and it's very difficult. And we have a bad track record when we act too early in just making a mess of it, we meaning the government, 
are we being a society? And yeah, there's a lot we don't know. And I mean, most of our conversations right now are prompted by chat GPT, which is, you know, incredibly impressive and kind of came like it felt like it came out of nowhere. But it could be after a while, people realize that chat GPT kind of has its limits and, you know, doesn't really produce professional quality materials such that, you know, it doesn't end up replacing lawyers or whatever. And if we write the entire legal regime focused on ChatGPT, could be something else AI related becomes more significant five years down the road, and we will have um, kind of created a regime all about ChatGPT. I mean, we do this a lot uh, in early tech areas. Uh, going back to the 90s, there was uh, obviously a lot of concern about the internet and, and, and music and copyright. And one of the technologies out there was this thing called the digital audio tape which I'm not sure if uh, anyone... I remember that. I remember that. You do remember that. I do, yes. So there was a panic set off by the digital audio tape, which is like a tape, except for the quality is like perfect. And um, Congress devoted its time and energy to writing a very comprehensive regime for the digital audio tape, which ended up basically extinguishing its commercial prospects in the United States. And in any event... (laughs) As soon as the ink dried on that, um, we were already in the age of Napster and and the internet and streaming and MP3s and you know the iPod. So and that was a, a good example of, of acting prematurely. And I think we want to avoid that in this case. We don't really know what kind of business model AI has. We don't know the limits. Everyone thought we'd be in like double, triple, supersonic airplanes right now, uh, but. You know, last thing I read, we're thinking of bringing back a supersonic plane one of these days, but haven't quite got to it. Everyone thought we'd have the artificial heart by now. You know, technology is unpredictable. It, it um, although it, it can it predictably flattens. How do we get around this? I mean, as you know, people in the industry point to past mistakes in regulating technology almost as an excuse to not even try. A lot of times they'll say, "Look, if we regulate too much here, other countries will just." do whatever they want and we'll fall behind or we won't really have solved the problem because the technologies will come elsewhere. You know, how do, how do you actually come up with thoughtful regulation based on what's actually going to happen in a way that's going to stick? Yeah. So I'm a big believer in, in the harm principle, which is regulating based on recognized or demonstrated harms or harms that are um, at least within a range of reasonable prediction. Now, doesn't mean I think we need to wait for a lot of people dying before doing anything, but I think we do need to get enough information to understand the business model and understand harms, and particularly if we are encouraging business models that make profit off of harms, like social media today, <laughs> as, as a good example of something that should be regulated but is not, and where we were way too late. So to make sure I, I, I have you right, you're saying there are enough real-world harms already happening that Congress maybe the president in another executive order could go out specifically without being over-worried about theoretical paths for AI. Yes, that's right. And I think, as I said earlier, I think the clearest extant harms are related to human impersonation. Um, you have, for example, problems with fake nudes uh, of, of like teenage girls being used to like cause extraordinary suffering and, and pain. Uh, we already have human voice impersonation being used to to steal money. Facial recognition software is uh, misused, particularly by uh, police departments. We have fake consumer reviews, which have shaken people's confidence in products. 
And we have uh, the ongoing problem of social media, and particularly social media and children, which uh, for many years now, despite uh, I think we have had 39 hearings in Congress on the problems of social media and not a single vote on legislation um, for reasons that are, uh, have to do a lot to do with the failure of Congress to deal with real harms in our time. More of my conversation with Tim Wu after this short break. At Eastern Bank, we believe in good business. That's why we provide clients with a suite of products and services made to take their businesses to the next level. From express business loans to seamless cash management solutions, we make it easy to grow when the time is right. As a trusted full-service bank and the number one SBA lender in Massachusetts for 15 years running, we understand what you need to keep your business thriving. See the good we can do for you by visiting easternbank.com slash business. Member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. On the idea of regulating AI impersonation, doesn't that run into some First Amendment challenges? I mean, I don't think so. Obviously, it depends how the law is written. What I would write is something called a Blade Runner law, which is to say that every um, AI uh, has to conspicuously and obviously brand itself as non-human, as, as, as a robot. You know, is that uh, a First Amendment problem? It gets to a slightly esoteric questions about whether robots uh, or machines speak. My strongly held academic uh, personal view of the Constitution is that it's meant to protect humans and not non-humans. Uh, we've stretched that to include corporations, but I don't think we could stretch that to include uh, machines that emit output that looks like speech. Well, I like your idea of calling it a Blade Runner law. Maybe the watermark can be that little origami thing that uh, the guy leaves on replicants. Yeah, that's a good suggestion. I mean, that would uh, certainly get the geek vote out there. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, we're getting, I, look, we're not quite where we are in Blade Runner, but um, uh, I guess there was something uh, prescient in understanding that there's a lot at stake in human impersonation and very little good that comes of it. Now, you will always have people evading the Blade Runner law, as in the movie, and you will have uh, people who make contraband AIs, and maybe other countries will specialize in them. But law, you know, law is always uh, going to have people trying to break it. The question is, right now, you can write something that impersonates a human, and you know, that's just normal business. So we've talked a bit about how to regulate these technologies themselves, and I, I, I think I want to come back to the other half of the equation, which is how tech companies more broadly can be reined in, including their business model. Um, so y you've devoted much of your career to this question. You came up with the idea of net neutrality, network neutrality, in hopes of keeping internet service as open as possible. You even ran for lieutenant governor of New York in 2014 in hopes of going after corporate power. And I just want you to make the case more broadly for why you're suspicious of any big concentration, big tech, big pharma, big finance. You know, I think the greatest challenge that we face in modern times is 
the challenge of concentrated private power, excessive private power. I think broadly about many of the concerns that we face as society, they are often about us allowing there be too much wealth, too much power in, in private hands. We designed the constitution to control public power, and I think that was incredibly important, but it you know, essentially had a loophole. There were not powerful corporations in, in the 1780s. I think when I look at the center of many of our problems, I think they're, they're right there. Now, tech is a part of it. I think tech is the most visible. It's not the only problem, uh, the only industry it's over-concentrated, but tech is the most uh, visible and in some ways the most politically powerful in the sense of replacing government and you know having so much information about you at their disposal and so much power to, to control what we see, see and hear. So part of the answer, and I think a historic answer to excessive private power is antitrust, which, you know, whether it was AT&T, whether it was Microsoft, Standard Oil, Alcoa, U.S. Steel, you name it, has always, or at least since 1890, existed to bring down the big guys a notch and balance things out a bit more. So that's a big part of it. Um, There's obviously more. How does the power of tech companies today compare to the monopolies that provoked the antitrust law in the first place, like the railroads and the oil trusts. I mean, are we seeing something where today's tech companies, especially with AI now in the equation, are even more powerful than those companies were 100 years ago? You know, it's a good question. Um, I would say there's some real similarities between that era and ours and some differences. The, The similarity is that we have allowed over the last 40 years an enormous number of sectors to become monopolized. Back in the first Gilded Age, um, it tended to be a monopoly for every industry. You had a a steel trust, a gas and oil trust, even had, I think, a a match book, a match trust who made matches. So you had one company controlling everything. Now we tend to have like two or three companies like T-Mobile, AT&T, and uh, Verizon, for example, in, in wireless communications. You tend to have that kind of thing or a couple airlines. So that that is similar, and the generation of individual wealth and extraordinary inequality is similar, both bad. But what's different, and where the tech companies come into play, is the tech companies are more totalizing. You know, Standard Oil may have controlled gasoline, and uh, U.S. Tobacco may have you know controlled all of cigarettes and pipes, but they didn't sort of shape or control your life, uh, affect what you see act as sort of a shadow government over your life in in the same way. And I think that is where the stakes are a little bit different, you know, the question of who rules. And um, partially that's why I think government response is important. If we're going to, you know, control these entities who have so much control over us, it has to be uh, not by hoping they'll do a better job or summoning them for congressional hearings now. And then we have to weaken and divide the power at, at a more structural level. So I know I don't have to tell you that the main argument against the application of antitrust law to tech companies is that much of what we get from Silicon Valley costs us zero dollars. You know, we don't have to pay money to use Google, Chat, GPT, Facebook, and so on. And antitrust law in recent decades has been concerned with whether a company's power allows it to raise prices unfairly. And, you know, this is the defense Amazon and other companies are making. You know, they say, look, how can we be hurting co- consumers? So what's what's your response to that claim? I think this is about power. 
Um, and in fact, just thinking about prices is, is too narrow a way to think about it. You know, it's a little bit politically to ask, well, you know, but we, we like the king, so why should we vote? And, you know, just narrowly on the idea that Google is, is free, um, I don't think you'd say that if you ever tried to advertise on Google and saw their advertising rates, uh, or if you consider the fact that, or how much data they're collecting you from you, which is itself almost like a form of currency. Or if you think of a company like Facebook or Instagram, I mean, how many hours of their life have they taken from you? Sort of quasi-voluntarily, you know, deliver you up to advertising. Do you notice yourself spending more money, maybe, having been subjected or um, exposed to advertising on a constant basis? Yeah, I think we're in a, in a struggle uh, in many ways to preserve uh, democracy in this country. And obviously, we have threats from uh you know, the, the far right, which are, are one thing, but we also have this sense that people don't feel in charge of their own lives. And a big part of that is big tech. And do you think AI accelerates that dynamic or worsens it? Uh, it I think it will. You know, the prospects of it just further feeding uh, sort of already uh, depressing business models, like figuring out better how to keep you on Facebook for extra hours or Instagram, or figuring out better just what your vulnerabilities are for advertisers. To the extent AI uh, makes bad business models worse, I think that's a bad thing. What worries me is that I don't know that your approach to antitrust is proving persuasive in court. Some big tech mergers haven't been able to be blocked. I see this case where the FTC in several states, including Massachusetts, are suing Amazon on antitrust grounds. And do you worry that the government's ability to constrain big tech could be damaged if Amazon wins that case? I am worried. I think the judiciary is, is a challenge. Um, I'll note that during the progressive era, the progressives lost a ton of cases. Um, in, in 1918, for example, a child labor law was struck down by the Supreme Court, a law banning child labor um, as being unconstitutional. I'm worried we're going to have a, a repeat of some of that, those scenarios where our efforts to deal with what feel like very pressing challenges uh, end up being struck down by the courts. States have tried to deal with the problems of social media and children and have had their laws uh, struck down. Um, California this fall. You know, last 40 years, we've sort of, we embraced the, the idea that business can do no wrong. Problem is business did a lot of wrong and uh, we have to, uh, you know, sort of turn the ship a little bit here if antitrust is going to have success. But, you know, I, I, we have good lawyers in the Justice Department and the Federal Trade Commission, and they're willing to put in a long fight. And if we lose some cases, you know, like I said, we had child labor laws struck down in 1918. Luckily that we didn't say, oh, well, I guess that didn't work. You know, we came, we went back at it. So those of us who don't have anything to do with antitrust law, what can we all do here? I mean, how should we deal with big tech as citizens and consumers in our own daily lives? Putting pressure on Congress to pass uh, better laws, putting pressure on Congress to pass privacy laws. Generally, I mean, privacy laws are kind of the the fundamental protection. They're like the Bill of Rights in our time against big tech because all the bad business models become harder the stronger our privacy laws are. And right now, there are no limits on the collection of data from any of us. And what we need is a basic law that strictly limits a collecting of data to the purposes for which you need it, as opposed to just random spying and surveillance. That is like the number one priority. The problem is Congress gets away with having a million hearings, talking about it and doing nothing. And it is a scandal that I think needs to attract more voting attention. You've brought up some sci-fi movies in this conversation, like yeah. Terminator, Star Wars, Blade Runner. 2001. 
Are you a big sci-fi fan? And the reason I ask is I want to know, are there any good examples of sci-fi that you think articulate a good, positive, not dystopian view of where this could all go? Oh, that's a good question. Definitely not Brave New World. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Definitely not 1984, although it had some of the privacy problems. I mean, some of the best science fiction works have been the ones that warn us in our times of a direction we don't want to go both 1984, Brave New World, it's amazing how relevant those books remain. Um, Are are there more um, positive models? You know, Huxley, uh, who's a great science fiction writer, he wrote a a sort of utopian version of Brave New World, which was his idea of how things should be. And it was called um, Island. And the main thing I remember from that book is he prophesied a future where people didn't work that hard. And I've long felt that with all our productivity enhancements and technologies or whatever, I wish we could find a future where people, um, you know, have really interesting jobs and don't have to like kill themselves and where, you know, it can be uh, normal for uh, one member of a, of a couple to work and the other to stay at home. And, you know, I, so that, maybe that's the hopeful note is I hope we uh, overcome our problem of overwork in my lifetime. Tim Wu is a professor of law at Columbia University. He's working on his next book, entitled Platform Capitalism, The Challenge of Private Power. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on Say More. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Say More is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Anna Kusmer with help from Scott Hellman. Our editor is Jim Dow. Our engineer is Uzair Ahmed. Our music is from APM Music. If you like the show, please follow us and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us at saymore at globe.com. I'm Brian Bergstein. Thanks for listening.